Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. All right, this is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, you may remember, if you weren't here last week, you can know that last week we saw Jesus' first miracle in John. And it was a little bit surprising that Jesus' first miracle was to make 150 gallons of wine so that the wedding could go on and that the party could continue. And we saw from that that when Jesus came to earth, when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, it's a celebration. It's a party. And we saw the good news that Jesus is bringing joy. He is bringing new life. He is filling us up. It was great and it was exciting. Um, I'll, just, I'll just warn you that what you have to hear today, some people don't, don't like it as much. But John puts it second for a reason. Uh, because it is just as true of Jesus what we are going to hear today. Um, and so we're going to hear today from John chapter 2. Verses 13 to 25, what does this tell us about Jesus? What do we need to know from him this morning? The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all your many blessings to us. We thank you for your word that you have given us, that you had written down so long ago and preserved for us to hear this morning. We pray that you would take this word and sink it deep into our hearts, that it would not merely be information for our heads, but transformation for our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a little bit hard to imagine, and I thought about turning off all the lights, uh, but then we'd still have the windows and it'd be pretty bright still. But if you were in a dark place, it's good to have a flashlight, right? Now, is this a good flashlight? It's, it's, a, it's an all right flashlight, it would help. But I think if I was in a really dark place, I might like that flashlight. And I'm not even gonna shine this out at you because it, I, I looked at it last night, and I couldn't see for like five minutes afterwards. But you can see even in this light place, like there's the little flashlight, there's the big flashlight. If I'm in a dark place, I want the big flashlight. And that's what John tells us about Jesus 
is that Jesus was the light of the world. That's what it said in John chapter 1, is that Jesus came as the light into the world. But here's the thing about flashlights. They give us light. They, give us, they, they make us able to see. But you know what else flashlights do? You know what I can see right now up here on my podium? I can see a lot of dirt and scratches that I could not see without this flashlight. And if you take this flashlight and you shine it around your house, you will see a lot of things that you did not want to see. You will see a lot of dirt in corners that you were not paying attention to before. You'll be like, you know what? Maybe I don't want those lights so bright. Let's turn that off. And really what we see here in John chapter 2 is that Jesus is kind of the same way. That Jesus comes in as the bright flashlight. And we, we like that. That's good. It gives us light. We want to be able to see. But it's a little bit scary sometimes. And what we see here in John chapter 2 is a little bit scary because here's the thing to realize. The key thing to realize as we look at John chapter 2, we, we can't know for sure what the people in the temple thought. But I have got to imagine that these people in the temple did not really think what they were doing was that bad. The people here in the temple, see what happens here. So John, Jesus is going up to the temple at Passover. This is when all the people were supposed to go up to the temple. All the, all the, the people of Israel were supposed to go and worship for the Passover. They go up to the temple. All kinds of people are here. People are coming from all over the place. Well, they were coming to make sacrifices. Well, if you were coming to make sacrifices in the temple, sacrifices of animals, well, you need some animals. So the people in the temple, they, they're providing a service. They're selling sheep and oxen. You need the right money to, to make the, your offerings in the temple. So there were money changers there. And they were not necessarily like literally in the Holy of Holies that we were there, out in the outer courts. And so it is very possible, we can't know for sure, but it's very possible that these people thought, had convinced themselves that they were doing the right thing. They were helping people out. Now, they, they were making some money as they did it, right? Any money, I mean, anybody who changes money, like I deserve a little bit of money for my service here. I deserve a little bit of money for having these animals. But what's, what's the harm in that? I'm helping the worshipers. I'm making a little bit of money. And Jesus comes in and he shines the light. And he says, no way. You are not doing the right thing. You may have told yourself you're doing something good, but you are not. And he comes in with force. And he will take on no questions. He comes in, he flips over tables. I mean, that would be the really great illustration here. Let me just flip over the table. Like, can you imagine if we were selling some stuff in the back that seemed innocent and somebody comes in and just starts flipping tables, pouring out all the coins, makes a whip, drives us out? This is a shocking act on Jesus' part. But what Jesus is telling us here, this is the main thing that Jesus is telling us. As we step back and say, what is the point of this? Why is Jesus doing this? Jesus telling us that Jesus is the one who defines reality. He gets to define reality on his terms. When we're kind of wandering about, kind of stumbling in the darkness, maybe even using some little flashlights, sometimes a little bit of understanding, we can get all mixed up and get thinking that things are good when they're not good. But Jesus comes in with the big light and he says, nope, I'm here. I define reality. And so what do we have to do? What is the right response to Jesus 
we don't see a lot of responses here. The, you know, the, the money changers and those selling the pigeons, like apparently they just cleared out, um, which was fine. The Pharisees, or the Jew, the, it says the Jews in verse 18, that means the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and others, they start asking questions. That, they're challenging Jesus. That's probably not the right response. The right response here we get from the disciples. And we see it in verse, uh, in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. We see it in verse, uh, in, again, in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. The disciples were watching Jesus and they were, they were trying to connect the dots. They were surprised just like everybody else. Like, Jesus, what, what are you doing turning over the tables? Jesus, what are you saying? Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Like, what? But they connected the dots. They remembered. They aligned themselves with Jesus. So if Jesus is the one who defines reality, the main thing that we do is we must align ourselves with him. We don't try to create our own reality. We don't try to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, what should be done, what should be done, how God should act on our terms. We look at Jesus, we look at the reality that he has defined, and we align ourselves with him. And we need this. We need this. Why do we need this? Because otherwise, it's the same reason we need a good light. We're stumbling around in the dark. We need something real and solid to hold on to. Otherwise, we're trying to make it all up for ourselves. And we're just going to stumble around making a mess of things. But we have to do, we want that when it's good for us. We want that when we like it. We want the celebration and the joy. And we, we have to accept the reality that Jesus tells us. That when he shines the light on our lives, there are things that need to change. And we have to obey him. We have to align ourselves with him. We see here three elements, very, fairly briefly, three elements of the reality that Jesus defines for us. First, he defines righteousness. Secondly, he defines proof. And third, he defines humanity. Righteousness, what it means to be good and to do right. Proof, what we actually need, should need to believe in him. And humanity, what does it mean to be human? So first, Jesus defines righteousness. This is what I kind of already alluded to. It's unclear what the people who are in the temple doing these things actually thought about what they were doing. But Jesus makes it very clear that what they are doing is not okay. Whatever they may have thought, whatever was acceptable to the people at the time, whatever is acceptable to the culture around them, Jesus says, nope, I define righteousness. I'm flipping these tables. I'm turning out the coins. Y'all get out of here. It's not going to happen. This house... Is, is, is my father's house. This is a place for worship, a place for prayer, a place to come before God, not a place of trade. If this is necessary, trade do it somewhere else. Not here. Not here. Jesus defines righteousness. Now, we don't, I mean, you could, you could make some applications perhaps to certain activities in church, but, but generally speaking, we're not in the business of changing money and selling animals in our houses of worship. It's not, not really our thing. But the question of where is Jesus defining righteousness is a very important question for all of us. To look at our lives and think, where have I gone wrong? Where am I doing something that seems good to me, but is really not good at all? We read uh, earlier this week uh, in the Daily Prayer Project, as Philip mentioned earlier, uh, the Daily Prayer Project readings from the Old Testament are in Proverbs. And we read in Proverbs that all a man's ways seem right to him 
But the Lord knows the heart. We are so easily able to convince ourselves that what we're doing is right. But Jesus comes with his bright, bright light and shines it on us. And sometimes we come and, and sometimes we don't realize that. And then we come to this point of realization. And here's the question. We come to the realization that Jesus wants us to do something different, that we have done wrong. Sometimes we realize that when we're reading the Bible and we see somebody, I have not been loving others as myself. Nope, nope, I should do that. Sometimes it's a direct conviction from the Holy Spirit. It says, you know what, I just, this is not right, what I've been doing. Sometimes it's from another person who points it out and calls us out and says, you know, this is not kind. This is not helpful. What you're doing is not good. And the question then is, what do we do when that happens? Because our natural tendency is to excuse and defend and deny and explain why what we're doing is actually not that bad. Yeah, no, Jesus, we can, we, can, we can sell these here. We're just helping people out. It's fine. It's fine, Jesus, you're overreacting. And so the call to each of us is a call to confession. When we see our sin, we see how Jesus has defined righteousness, we confess our sins. And so what we can practically do to get better at this is to make it a habit, to make a habit of confession. It is so hard for us to say, I was wrong. Whether we're a child or whether we're an adult, it is hard to say, you know, when somebody says you're wrong, it's hard to say, you know what, I was wrong. I'm sorry. But if we make that a habit of when our sin is pointed out, say, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? God, will you forgive me? If we make that a habit, both when faced with our wrongs and in our daily lives of examining them, of each day saying, God, where have I gone wrong? Let me confess it. There is such freedom in confession, in receiving the forgiveness. This is why we confess our sins in the service the worship service, to receive the freedom of healing and forgiveness, to look at the light and instead of being like cockroaches who run away from the light, we stand in the light and we say, you know, this light is good and I was wrong, but now I stand forgiven and I can stand in this light in the name of Jesus, healed in his name. Jesus defines our righteousness and so we see that, we confess our sins, we align ourselves to him. Jesus also defines proof. We see this. Perhaps the more shocking thing, so he turns over the tables like, well, okay, they were wrong. They didn't realize that. He turns over the tables. And then they ask him for a sign. We're like, all right, this is reasonable, right? Jesus is just getting started. He's really just this guy who waltzed into the temple and starts flipping over tables. The leaders are like, dude, what are you doing? Can you give us some proof? And Jesus is like, uh, how about you destroy this temple? And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, that's not, he's not, as they realized later on, as they realized, he wasn't really talking about the temple. It wasn't really any kind of answer or any kind of sign. It was kind of like a, bring it on. Try me. You're looking for proof? Come on. Kill me and see what happens. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I will show you proof on my terms because he defines reality. And so the proof that Jesus offers us is that he rose from the dead. And we can bring all our questions to him. We bring all that we want. Jesus, if you would only show me this or show me that, if you would only make my life easy, if you would only make this person be kind or make this problem go away, then I might believe in you. We, we do this bargaining thing with God. We all do it. Whether you've, been, whether you've never put your faith in Jesus or whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, we all bargain with God. But Jesus says we don't, we don't get to do that. We get the proof on his terms. And isn't that actually a good thing? How would we do if we were just getting our own proof? If, we, if, Jesus, if God just did what we wanted, 
What kind of God is that who just does what we wanted, what we think best? Instead, he gives us proof on his terms. So yes, ask your questions. Yes, bring your doubts, bring them to God, but bring them in the way that he has given us. He has given us his word. Study it. Explore it. See what he says about himself. This is what we get as we dig into his word together, whether it's through the Daily Prayer Project, whether it's in our community groups, whether it's in our Christianity Explored. It's a great opportunity to dig into God's word, to see what Jesus has said for himself, who he really is, the proof that he offers on his own terms. And then see that and put your faith in him. Put your trust in Jesus. Say, you know what? You've given us your word. You showed it through your life. I know that you died and rose again. There's no other explanation for the history of the world and how it has played out other than that Jesus died and rose again. So we take his proof that he offers and we put our faith in him. And then lastly, Jesus defines humanity. This is, it's kind of a cryptic section here at the end, verses 23 to 25. When he was in, but in Jerusalem in the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus don't need anybody. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what it's like to be a person. He knows it. He made us. He lived as a man. He understands people. And that is both a challenge to us. Jesus understands every part of us. He knows it here. He doesn't entrust himself to them because people are not trustworthy. We do not just trust the people who claim to be Christians. We trust Jesus himself. He did not entrust that to anybody else. He says, look, look at me. And there's kind of a, there's a wordplay here uh, that they, the people believed in Jesus. In trust, trust and believe are the same thing, right? So the people believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them. <laughs> he did not give his belief to them because he knew. He knew that people are weak. It's a challenge to us. We are weak and fallen. But what a comfort to know that Jesus knows us so well. Jesus does not entrust himself to us, and that is good. We hear the call to go and spread God's word, to share it with children, to share it with adults, tell other people, and we think, but I have failed so often. Jesus has not trusted himself to us. He has given him, us the privilege of sharing in his message, but he is not relying on us. Jesus stands apart. He offers himself to us. He gives himself to us. He gives us the privilege of participation but he stands not needing anybody else. Isn't that wonderful to have a God who does not need us? Our God is not a needy God waiting for our sacrifices, our acts of penance to make something happen like the idols of old, like the way that people still today many times think about God. Our God stands on his own and he says, I define reality. I define righteousness. I define proof. I define who you are. I know who you are. Come. Come and see. Come and be filled. Come and walk into the light. You will see some things you don't want to see. But the God who does not need us can change us. And he can make us so we can stand and walk by this light. And then we can walk in obedience and joy and celebration. And when we fall, when we see something that we don't like, we confess it. And we put it before him and we know that our sins are forgiven as we walk before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
We pray that you would take this word and sink it deep into our hearts. Would you show us where we have gone wrong, where we have made our own reality instead of yours? Would you show us where we need to change? Would you show us where you love us and care for us? Would you feed us with yourself now as we come to your table? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.